This episode of the My Latin Life podcast is brought to you by Language Blend, the new best way to learn Spanish. Language Blend focuses on what you actually need to live and get by abroad with daily one-on-one lessons, a dedicated texting partner. It's like living in a Spanish-speaking country without ever leaving home. Go to languageblend.com for more information. Yeah, I mean, there's basically, I had two options. So, as you said, I think if, if you live basically for five years in Mexico, you get citizenship. Or if you marry a Mexican, two, after being married for two years to a Mexican, you get uh, a citizenship. So either way, two years married or five years living here. Welcome back to another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Since 2014, My Latin Life has been your trusted guide to traveling and living in Latin America. My guest today is Hervoye Moric, host of the Geopolitics and Empire podcast and TNT Radio. Hervoye, how's it going, man? Excelente. Que onda, vatos? <laughs> <laughs> And where are you calling in from if uh, that wasn't enough of a hint? It's, it's already an open secret. I am in Guadalajara, Mexico, the second biggest city, right, in Mexico. Awesome. And I am based in Mexico as well. In fact, I'm uh, drinking a michelada as we record. So cheers to you, sir. I'm having some organic uh, Mexican wine. I think the brand is Adobe. So there you go. Cheers. Ooh. There you go. So um, I guess to kick things off, I've uh, worth mentioning I've been a guest before on, was it the T- TNT radio that I was a TNT, guest on? TNT radio. And funnily enough, I just got off the line uh, with James Guzman of Borderless. Last hour, he was my guest. Uh, and you were with him together uh, on my TNT show last mm-hmm. year. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I was on twice, once uh, as a solo guest, and then another time, uh, James and I together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And James is a previous podcast guest at the My Latin Life podcast, just for some continuity, so people can uh, go look up the episode with James Guzman. He's a a huge OG in in the whole internationalization space and um, sort of international migration space. Borderless podcast is James's show that you guys can look up. Um, so maybe that maybe that's a good place to start. Hurvoye, uh, maybe you could tell us like how long have you kind of been in this space and how did you get your start and who were your early influences? Yeah, well, I mean, I came to Mexico in 2010, so I, I think I met James like 2014 or 16. Um, I went out to San Miguel to meet him, and um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't know where to start. I mean, I'm, I'm from the U.S., but I decided to per- permanently expatriate in 2006 because I learned all about you know the American Empire, and I, yeah, you know, I, I wanted to travel the world and learn languages and learn about other cultures. Very sort of like nomad, worldly, and I'm a Croatian, and Croatians are very nomadic. And I got my, my many cousins are all around the planet. I've got cousins in Vietnam, some that were previously in Russia and Turkey and Germany and, and so forth. And so, um, uh, yeah, so I, I went off to Mongolia, did Peace Corps, and then 
did my graduate in Switzerland, Geneva. Uh, and, and then after Geneva, I'm like, the world is my oyster. And I just love remote places. I was applying for jobs and or going to apply or applying in Alaska, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Mongolia. And then finally, I ended up being offered this gig in uh, Guadalajara at the Tecnológico de Monterrey, which is like the MIT of Mexico, where all the wealthy send their kids. Mm -hmm. It's a high school and university system. Uh, and then, yeah, 2010 is when I started um, came down to Mexico. And I thought, you know, one year, two years, you know, kind of what you talk about, my life, you know, pretty women, Latin women, um, the weather, the food is great. Who doesn't want to learn Spanish? One year, one year turns into two, turns into marrying, having kids, buying a home in Mexico. <laughs> uh, you know, 2018, I became a proud Mexican citizen. And I take my citizenship seriously. You know, it's no light thing. Uh, I know Mexican history probably better than most Mexicans, being a former history teacher at the Tech de Monterrey. And yeah, it's my third, my third uh, passport, uh, U.S. passport, Croatian passport, EU citizen. EU citizen. Um, unfortunately, I'm totally not a fan of the European Union uh, and now a Mexican citizen. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know uh, what else I can tell you. There you go, guys. How does it feel to be a, a triple citizen? It's it's great. I mean, um, and, you know, along the lines of what you, you do, like I've interviewed, I've had on my podcast, Doug Casey, the international man, Matt Smith, who works with him. They're both down in Uruguay. And, you know, that's always been my intuitive philosophy. It just makes sense. And, you know, myself being a, a Christian, I mean, some people will be shocked. I forget which part of the Bible it's like, I don't know if it's the Old Testament or Proverbs, but it actually says, I mean, it's shocking. You can go and check it to spread your wealth across multiple uh, jurisdictions or geographies. Basically, the Bible teaches you to be a permanent, um, what do you call it, PT, permanent tourist or um Mm -hmm. uh, because you never know what's going to happen, you know, one geographic location. And so it's just, I've just always found it in intuitive. And so, um, so yeah, I've just been sort of floating, floating around the planet and having three passports. I mean, it helps. I, I, I like becoming a Mexican because just less paperwork in many instances, like, uh, you know, when every time you, you exit Mexico, go to the U S or you got to fill out those immigration forms. And now it's just like, no, here's my two passports and that's it. Or when I was fleeing Kazakhstan, uh, in 2020, during um, the COVID incident, um, I, you, first of all, it was almost it was very difficult to to leave Kazakhstan because everything was shut down. And then it took me five days to get back to Mexico, and we had to go. We we took this emergency flight route for inter internationals, and it was through Amsterdam. Now get this, my family—they're not yet uh, Croatian citizens because I haven't done the paperwork for them. But when we landed in Amsterdam, they were like, um, you know, third country nationals couldn't go through the EU. And I had to book the hotel for the night at the Amsterdam airport. And the security, like, they, they put us to the side and I'm waiting for five or ten minutes. And I'm like, wait a minute. I read the rules. Like, I thought they were just having us wait. But I think they thought I was not a European. And I went back up to, angrily to the security. And I'm like, Here's my, I'm, a, I'm a European. I'm a Croatian. Why am I waiting here? And they're like, oh, oh, okay, go ahead. And because my family, um, you know, because I was a Croatian EU citizen, they were allowed no questions to go with me. So, again, that was a perfect example of how having a second or third passport mm -hmm. allowed us to escape Kazakhstan through Europe back to Mexico, where 
otherwise we would have been in a tight spot. So, you know, any extra passport that you can get or permanent residency is, is very valuable. And I, I, there's so you, you've mentioned so many things. It's almost like, what should I touch upon? You've given me the, the whole candy store, but um, I guess maybe the audience would just like to get a better picture of you. So it sounds like you've been a, professor or teacher for for many years the better part of a decade what what has been sort of your professional trajectory um i guess in the professional working world at large and and as a teacher yeah um you know i'm i studied education and history uh my undergrad in illinois northeastern illinois uh, it's a teacher's college not not big no not so big like northwestern and so uh, i'm a teacher by trade and um yeah, I'm I'm very conspiratorially minded, just so uh, people know. <laughs> but um, yeah, and so I've been a teacher, and so I taught. Uh, I taught English. Uh, I was an English language volunteer in Peace Corps out in Mongolia, uh, and then when I came back, I wanted to study. So I studied history, my undergrad, and then my master's was in, in international relations at the Geneva School of Diplomacy. In Geneva, and there I was also an intern or staff assistant at the UN and EU. And some of my professors included, you know, um, uh, Dutch American international human rights lawyer Curtis Dobler, who was Saddam Hussein's defense lawyer. Uh, or uh, I, I had as a professor Ibra- Ibrahim uh, Sous, who was Yasser Arafat's brother in law, you know, the, the Palestinian Liberation yeah. Organization. Uh, and, and other, you know, fancy people. Alfred Desaias, a uh, professor of mine, he's been on my podcast a number of times. He's a um, great-grandson of um, Cuba's president and UN special rapporteur. He's often on Russia Today and places like this. And so, yeah, and then I taught, as I said, in Mexico, Detective Monterrey. I taught high school, secondary education, and I was an international relations adjunct professor at the tech. Okay, okay. And um, the tech Monterrey, because we keep mentioning it, it's a um, it's a combined high school and university, and they have several campuses, right? They got about thirty campuses all over uh, Mexico. They're like one of the top universities in all of Latin America. And in fact, uh, a friend of mine sent me an email a couple like two weeks ago because you know you had the World Economic Forum Davos, and they were the only. So the tech, you know, they're very proud. They shot out an email saying. The Tech de Monterrey of Mexico was the only university in all of Latin America to officially be invited to the World Economic Forum. And I know when I taught there probably 10 years ago, Al Gore visited our campus in um, Campus Guadalajara, uh, Tech de Monterrey. And, you know, during the pandemic, because a lot of classes were online, they had Bill Gates and Hillary Clinton speak at the online graduation ceremonies at the Tech de Monterrey. So that just sort of tells you how important uh, the Tech de Monterrey is. And again, like I said, the wealthy of Mexico, you know, half mm-hmm. of the students have like um, scholarships, partial or full. And then the other half are like ultra wealthy. I, I had students who, one student, when she graduated at age 18 from the high school, the prepa, her dad bought her a military Hummer. She was driving around, you know, other kids, dads picked them up in like Lamborghinis. Some of them have like private, you know, jets. And so, yeah, that's how it is at the Tech de Monterrey. And I'm just curious, how did you go from the uh, Geneva School of Diplomacy in Switzerland to to Mexico and teaching at the the Tech de Monterey? 
Well, like I said, my background was history, and so I was applying for jobs like at the Red Cross and and all also and teaching and and you know wh- whatever I could get. Uh, and then the my, the director of the prepa at Campus Guadalajara, Tech de Monterrey, he happened to be Scottish, and so like I said, I sent in my CV and I got uh, hired. So, you know, and it helps because I had the background in Geneva and you know interesting mm-hmm. experiences, and that helps as a teacher. And so, yeah, they, they, they hired me and then I was there for until 2017. I was kind of getting tired of Mexico and um, I put out my, my CVs in different places and I got hired to, to go to Kazakhstan. That's a big, big change from, uh, from Mexico to Kazakhstan. Oh, man. I mean, the, especially, well, you know, I lived previously in, uh, I fell in love with Central Asia. You know, one of the things was... There was a great documentary called. This documentary was actually produced by two Croatian brothers. It's called um, Genghis Blues, and it followed this blind blues musician called Paul Pena from San Francisco, who f- he fell in love with uh, throat singing. It's called Humi, which is uh, native to the Central Asian region. Mm-hmm. Tuva, so Tanu Tuva, which is right next to Mongolia. It's basically the same same culture. And they sing like two or three or four different tones, you know, at the same time. And so when I watched that, I was like, I fell in love with Central Asia, you know, Genghis Khan, the Mongols. And it's the country with the lowest population density. And I just love being in the middle of nowhere. So uh, (laughs) uh, that's why you know I went to Mongolia. I lived in the little town in the southern part of Mongolia, Gobi. It was like less than a thousand people in the village, and you're literally in the middle of nowhere, hundreds of kilometers away from civilization, and you know minus thirty, minus forty Celsius. Uh, and so, you know, when I did Kazakhstan, and usually in around February, it got so cold, the schools closed for a week because it's like minus thirty, minus forty, minus fifty. So, uh, you know, fun times. <laughs> Is that the Gobi Desert, or am I mistaken? Well, in Mongolia, yeah, it's 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 the Gobi Desert in where I was in Mongolia, uh, and then uh, to the way to the well to the west where I was in Kazakhstan, I was the the northern tip of Kazakhstan actually, which is like close to the southern tip of Siberia. By the way, Mongolia Ulan Batar, uh, which is Ulan means red, Batar means hero. It's the city of the red hero, you know, harken back to the communist times and. Uh, in, in, I was living in Semei in Kazakhstan, which is uh, used to be called Semipalatinsk. That's where they sent all the dissidents. Uh, so Dostoevsky was sent to Semei, where I lived, for mm-hmm. I think like five years. I visited his old, old home in Semei. And 120 kilometers from Semei, where I was living in Kazakhstan, um, was the Polygon. That was the principal Soviet nuclear test site. 18,000 square kilometers. And from 1949... Uh, to 1990, the Soviets dropped 500 plus nukes on the Polygon, uh, you know, above ground. And then after like the nuclear test ban treaty in the early 1960s, uh, they couldn't do above ground tests anymore. They had to do uh, underground tests. And so I actually went to visit um, the Polygon part of it. And I visited one of the ground zeros, you know, where one of the nukes actually dropped. So, yeah, quite fascinating <laughs> experience. I have a, a random question, and I know we're going to bounce a lot in this episode, but you grew up in the United States. You were born in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was born in Chicago. So I'm a Chicagoan, Windy City. And again, my parents are immigrants, so they came, they left Yugoslavia in the 80s 
they met separately. So they both left. Uh, my father's from Dalmatia, which is, so I'm a Dalmatian. So, he, you know, he's from the southern coast of, of, of Croatia. So that's, it's funny though, in Spanish though, because many times you'll just translate like the same word, you know, Dalmatian and in, in Spanish you'll say like Dalmata. But apparently Dalmata is an insult. And, and I, I insulted myself. I was with some of my wife's uh, family and I'm like, you know, I, I'm a Dalmata in Spanish. And he goes, yo soy una Dalmata. And they all started laughing because to, to call someone a Dalmata is like an insult because that's also a dog, you know. Mm-hmm. But in English, when you say I'm a Dalmatian, you know, you, you come from the D- Dalmatian area of Croatia. So a lot of new, that, that's how you learn the language too. Don't be afraid to make fun of yourself or, you know, th- that's how you learn. Uh, and yeah, my mother's from the North. And so anyways, they met in Chicago. I was born and then um, uh, I think uh, every single year, you know, back in the 80s, they would send me alone as a kid to Yugoslavia. At the time, you know, it's Yugoslavia, but Croatia for three months, four months, you know, long stretches of time. So we went every single year pretty much. And then when I was in fifth grade, it was like 1994, the war was still going. Um, and we moved back for like a year to split Spalato in Italian. And um, the, the Serbs had not gotten as far as split. So it wasn't like I was living with, you know, bombs every night. Uh, and then we moved back, and then I went to high school again in, in Croatia, 1997, I think. Uh, and then I moved back to the States, and so it's sort of like a back and forth. Okay, gotcha. Because I kind of just noticed that you talk about Croatia a lot, and you identify with Croatia a lot for someone that wasn't born there. <laughs> I know you have the passport, um, but I was kind of just curious to unpack that a little bit. Well, no, because my name, Hrvoje, means Croat or Croatian. Because uh, in Croatia and Croatian is Hrvatska, so the root mm-hmm. Hrvatska, Hrvoje. I speak fluent uh, Croatian. And like I said, I traveled every year, speak the language. It's my culture. Uh, I, I kind of liken it to a Mexican who's born in the U.S. You know, maybe their parents are born in Mexico. Uh, and then this the, the kid is born in, Mex- in, in the U.S. They speak fluent Spanish along with English. They eat Mexican food. They listen to Mexican music, you know. Um, you, you get what I'm saying, and then is that person American or Mexican? For me, it's like no, you're you're Mexican. I, I'm uh, Croatian, and uh, I identify more as a Croatian than an American. Mm-hmm. And the um, the uh, the school in Geneva, the Geneva School of Diplomacy in Switzerland. So that's where you got your graduate degree. Yeah, I got my master's of international relations at GSD, uh, as we call it. Actually, the year that I graduated, it's a funny story. This kind of links to my future. 2000, it's a relatively new school. It was born or it's a private university founded in the early 2000s by Colum de Sales Murphy, an Irishman who worked in the UN. He's the president of the school. And 2009, I graduated. And every year they invite like... um, you know, they give honorary degrees or diplomas to interesting people. You know, actually, one of my classmates, his father was China's ambassador to the UN. So again, a lot of fascinating time. And Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev, was invited to my graduation ceremony, but because of his age at the time, he couldn't make it. And so, I think his his right hand man, whom you who you see with 
Gorbachev and all of those photos with, you know, historic photos of Bush and all these people. I think it's Pavel, if I'm not mistaken. He came in the Gorbachev stead. And by, uh, you know, a twist of fate in 20, I think it was 2017, spring of 2017, I ended up going for three weeks to Russia. There's a lady called Sharon um, Tennyson. She's got an NGO called Citizen Center for Citizens Initiatives. And she's been doing this since the 80s, like trying to promote peace between, you know, Russia and the U.S. And she organizes these trips. And like 30 of us Americans went uh, to Russia. We met with Gorbachev for two two hours. I shook his hand. Um, we met other, you know, Vladimir Posner is very famous in Russia. He had his own primetime show in the in the U.S. with, I think, Tom Brokaw in the 1970s. And so... I got to meet Gorbachev eight years later. You know, since he couldn't make it to my graduation, uh, I, I I met him in Moscow. So. And did you tell him why did you miss my graduation? <laughs> no, well, yeah, no, I had a brief moment with him, and so I just told them like, "Oh, I'm, I I graduated from GSD," and he's like, "Oh, it's a great school." Yeah, I know, you know. So that's very cool. How does like a a Croatian American? make his way to the Geneva School of Diplomacy. Like you did the, you did the Peace Corps, which we haven't really talked about. Um, but, um, and we, we've talked about how you've always had an interest in history, but there, there must have been a uh, decision-making process that led you up to that. Well, it's, it's like what happened in 2000s. I just, everyone falls in love with some particular subject, right? And, you know, I just loved history and, you know, as I, I like I said, I'm a Christian. I love the, the Bible and prophecy. So for me, those all come together. You know, biblical prophecy, history, and then political science or international relations. And so, uh, it just turned out that at that moment, Geneva was it was the best option because it was a one year program. And then I was looking at other stuff like the Colorado, I think Boulder. Um, they had a two year Masters of International Relations, and each year was like thirty grand. And this, the Geneva School was like, also like thirty grand a year, but they gave us a partial scholarship, and so it's like, why waste two years when I can do the same thing in one year at half the price? It just made total sense. And Geneva is the heart of, you know, the global power uh, structure. You've got all of the uh, IGOs, international government organizations, NGOs. Everything is 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 there in Geneva, and um, yeah, you know, so. I did have a Serbian American classmate, and uh, I would hang out at the Croatian mission to the UN <laughs> out there in Geneva. I, 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 I'd go, I'd go down there, and so, yeah, yeah. We have uh, an episode, uh, episode fifty, with um, someone that graduated from like the UN School of Diplomacy or Global Affairs. I think it's called. Uh, also in Geneva. I'm not sure if the schools have any sort of relationship. They just sound so similar. Yeah. Uh, with uh, Felipe May, maybe you know him. Uh, he's uh, like kind of in, in the immigration investment space. But he, yeah, he went to the, like, it's like a UN school sponsored by the United Nations. And they sort of train people up to be ambassadors and, uh, you know, members of consulates and stuff. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that. I know you've got like the Geneva... Uh, well, um, people mix up Geneva School of Diplomacy. You've got Webster University. They've got a campus out there. And then you've got um, like the Geneva Graduate School, which mm -hmm. is like Swiss. And so that's separate. Um, 
I know the UN has a, the UN university is in Costa Rica. I had a great time. I went to Costa Rica, I think 2016. I didn't have time to stop and visit the UN university in Costa Rica, but um, yeah, I, I'm just not familiar with that UN university in Geneva. Fair enough. Just a aside, I wanted to see if there was a little bit of a connection there because I feel like I, I've been going so deep on all this stuff. I almost want to legitimize it in some way by uh, uh, maybe studying in Geneva or something like that. I think it'd be cool. Like if you have European citizenship, I bet it's uh, quite a bit easier and, and cheaper to uh, to study there. Cheaper? I'm not. Well, I'm not sure about the cheaper. It was a I mean, it was a blast. I had the time of my life in uh, Geneva meeting so many fantastic people. Uh, it's expensive, though, uh, you know, and I mean, just to compare when I was there. And so I studied with my sister. So my sister and I both studied that same master's and it was cheaper, you know, for our father plus the scholarship to pay because uh, we just he, he paid for one apartment. Right. And the crazy mm. the price of the at the time. So this is what, like almost like 15, 14 years ago. So one little apartment, it was like one bedroom plus the living room, kind of like two bedroom, but a tiny apartment. I think it was like 1,800 francs a month. That's like, uh, you know, let's say equivalent to $1,800 a month, which is pretty crazy. And then, I mean, when I first came to Mexico in 2010, like a year later, I was play- paying for a two bedroom, you know, small home, like $250 uh, a month compared to almost two grand a month in Switzerland. So, you know, it's, 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 it's very expensive. And then usually people in the, in international relations, when they graduate, you, you, you have to intern like for six months or a year or more before you find a paying gig, you know, hope, hoping you find a job at the UN or some international organization or some government or some NGO. And so you have to be able to sponsor yourself for like a year paying rent and food and everything. And I'm like, I, I can't, my, my dad can't do that. And so I had to hightail it out of there uh, as well. You know, I heard stories about, you know, especially from the, the female side, people would do unruly things, you know, to try to get jobs. <laughs> and I know people who did, you know, um, like a fake I, marriage or something. Well, no, not fake marriage, but, you know, sleeping around or whatever to get <laughs> jobs, that, 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 that sort of thing. And so it's, it's you know, it's a tough, uh, tough spot. So, but Jeez. Yeah. I mean, any, any good university is in an expensive city. You know, you want to go to Harvard, it's in Boston, stuff yeah. like that. So it's whatever. Um, okay. I, I, I'm not sure if I want to ask you about Mexico and Guadalajara and how you chose Guadalajara, or I want to ask you about... Um, kind of just like how you got started with TNT Radio and the Geopolitics and Empire podcast. Um, I'll give you the choice. What would you be more excited to talk about? Well, I mean, like the podcast is sort of my passion. And so it was like 2012, basically. And, you know, I started teaching. And I never wanted to. I, I'm, I'm more introverted by nature. But at this point, I'm like I'm, I'm pretty extra, extroverted. But um I just couldn't find intelligent people around me to talk about these things like at depth, you know, whether it's war, you know, all these different wars that are going on, Syria, Libya, all these things that are going around the world. Even the people in my field, like the the other teachers around me that are teaching history and political science, everyone was just sort of, um, 
like just show up to work, do the minimum and then leave, you know, like lowest common denominator. And I actually, I eschew that sort of behavior. I I think everyone, I mean, if you're going to do something, be passionate about it. And I'm like, don't, don't, if you're going to be a history teacher, be a history teacher, go above and beyond. Or if you're going to do podcasts or whatever you do. And I was getting, I think it's a shame. You know, I, I, when I was a teacher, I was doing gamification. I was constantly pushing the envelope and I just would, look with disdain at colleagues who just uh, I even had one director a Mexican uh, department director come to me and say you need to chill out you're making the other teachers look bad uh, it was like the crab mentality you know where the crab pulls you down where you're one crab trying to get out of the bucket and then the other crabs pull you down mm-hmm. like I, I couldn't believe where they were actually telling me like you're doing too many things you're, you're doing too good your, your, your work you need to be worse because you're making all the other lazy people look bad. And so uh, I ended up 2012. I'm like, I want to talk to these smart people. How do I get to talk to them? Maybe I Skype them into my classroom and then uh, throw that up on YouTube. So I started Skyping in like Dr. Paul Craig Roberts was well known. He was, he worked with Ronald Reagan, assistant secretary of the treasury, Ray McGovern for former CIA officer who, whose job was to brief seven presidents, the daily intelligence brief, you know, people like this, I'd Skype in, uh, and I would just throw it up on the pod uh, on the YouTube. It was called Dissident Th- Dissident Thinker. It's still up there on YouTube. And then around 2015, I just said like, I, I should just create a regular like a proper podcast. And I didn't know how to do any of this. I was just flying by the seat of my pants, and I just sort of figured it out over time with trial and error. And around 2015, 2016, you know, um, geopolitics and empire was born. And it was always just moonlighting. I was teaching full time. Uh, and then it wasn't until 2021 when I finished, no, the whole COVID thing happened. And then, uh, my contract was up in 2021 with, uh, Kazakhstan. And then I just decided to try and focus full-time on geopolitics and empire podcast. And then like March, 2022. So that's like 10 months ago, almost coming out in a year. Uh, you know, TNT radio was born about a year ago. And so, um, I guess they saw my work with geopolitics and empire and they just offered me a full-time gig at TNT. And I'm like, I see. Okay. So okay. the geopolitics and empire has been since 2012. Yeah. Not, not in the, that, I mean, that's like the Genesis 2012 was dissident thinker and that, okay. Uh, and then like 2015, 16 was geopolitics and empire. And I was just moonlighting, you know, just like a hobby. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, I'm kind of working, trying to work full-time on the geopolitics and empire and doing, you know, TNT full-time. So, Interesting. And so I, I imagine I almost want to talk about this early genesis of geopolitics and empire because this kind of brings back to um, I feel like the, the origins of this space are very interesting and it's not often that we have the chance to sort of dig it up. So let's talk a minute about talk for a minute about that 2012 to 2016 period. Like, were you starting to get in touch with Maybe like Doug Casey, Jim Rogers, or any kind of uh, other um, uh, top thinkers in the space, or what? What were you kind of doing during that period of time? To how you know how? What was your creative process and and sort of networking process as well? Yeah, Jim Rogers came later with um, Geopolitics and Empire, but um, <clears throat> I mean, early on. Like I said, I wanted to talk to smart people because no one else around me wanted to <laughs> talk about this stuff. And that was my, you know, ticket, ticket to ride, so to speak. 
and so I sent out, I mean, people can go back to the archive, but, you know, I sent out to all these different people, you know, ex-CIA officers, um, Paul Craig Roberts and Lord, Lord Christopher Monckton out in the UK. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you get one person, they say, okay. And then another, and then you're like, wow, you know, this person said, okay. And then you do the interview with them, you Skype them in live and they talk with you in the class. I figured out how to record the Skype and the audio. I, you know, so, some of them were poor quality initially. And then one thing leads to another. You start building your channel, which helps you get more uh, guests. And then um, I, I interviewed Peter Dale Scott, who's like in his 90s now. He's uh, a Berkeley professor, former Canadian diplomat. He's sort of like the father of the study of deep politics, you know, the deep state stuff and so um yeah and then like i said i figured i don't know how long i'll be teaching and it was getting cumbersome with the students because students just are kind of lazy and they don't want to participate and i'm like it's better i do this one-to-one so i said okay i'm gonna do my own uh podcast and then you know later i had jim rogers on he's you know he's big and so that's my biggest uh interview uh, on my youtube channel but my biggest interview got deleted, you know, back in January of 2020, I interviewed the author of the bioweapons act, the treaty that was signed into law in 1989 by George Bush, Francis Boyle. And I was the very first to contact him to get his thoughts on the whole COVID stuff. And his theory in January, 2020 was that it Hmm. was, uh, that COVID was a, a bio, uh, you know, it came from the lab and that got 300,000 views. And it would have had millions. I'm certain it would have had millions yeah. on YouTube, and it would have, you know, ju- uh, prom- uh, the channel would have gotten much bigger. But you know, they they deleted it, and so you know, what what, what can you do? Yeah, r- run us through one more time. Who have been sort of your biggest guests? If people want to look it up, Jim Rogers is one of my biggest inspirations. So super, um, super jealous of that. Who who are who are some of the other people? I know you kind of mentioned it a bit, but run it through one more time. I mean, I, I like to look for obscure people, but um, I mean, I, I, I'm looking through the list now. You know, I, I've had Pierce Corbin recently. He's the brother of Jeremy Corbin, you know, the famous politician in Britain. Uh, Dr. Arian Harriati recently, he's also pretty well known. I, I recently interviewed a couple months back Terry Baudet, who's uh, a top uh, Dutch politician of the Forum for Democracy. And he said something jokingly in the interview, and that re- that got thrown around on national Dutch uh, uh, media. So my podcast with him was national Dutch news, and then even you know the Ron Paul Institute, uh, Daniel McAdams, who does the show with Ron Paul daily, he messaged me. He listens to my podcast, and he was like, "That was a great interview with Terry." And then he tweets out on Ron Paul Institute. He's like. This pod, my podcast, the Geopolitics and Empire podcast, this is coming from, from, from Daniel Mac- McAdams and the Ron Paul Institute. He's like, this is where the real underground intellectual revolution takes place. <laughs> Talk about my podcast. I was like floored. You know, he's been a guest on my podcast as well. Uh, you know, Martin Armstrong, he's pretty well known. He's been a guest. Um, just looking at look, look. Kim Iverson was a guest of mine. She, she covered my deplatforming from PayPal last <laughs> year. Uh, Doomberg. Uh, he's, he's well, Gonzalo Lira, who's out in Ukraine. I'm just, Kurt Schlichter is famous in the conservative world. Sean Stone, Oliver Stone's um, 
son was guest, uh, you know, just a lot of. Uh, wow, what does that guy do? Oliver Stone's son. Um, yeah, he makes documentaries. He's written book. Uh, he's he's sort of he's got his own sort of channel going on, but um, he's kind yeah. of new new agey uh, right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I've, you know, I, I like to look for obscure people. I've had this Bulgarian journalist, Diljana Gaitanzieva. She's covered like um, the Biolab stuff. And Ed Calderon, who's been on Joe Rogan. He's been a guest of mine. He's oh, like that guy's person. cool. Yeah, you had him on? Yeah. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's, I listened to that Rogan one recently, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, I have a question that I was kind of saving. Now's a good uh, a time as any. What's the secret to getting Jim Rogers on the podcast? Because I've seen like dozens of interviews with him over the years, and he'll often go on very obscure channels, um, like like very just like <laughs> like yeah, r- really small channels. And I'm always floored and surprised that uh, he accepts those interviews. And it's funny he'll be like walking on a. Uh, What's it called? Like he'll be on an exercise bike on the interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and but he seems to just accept like all the interviews. But at the same time, I feel like he's kind of hard to get in touch with. So I'm curious, what, what was the story? How did that work out for you? I mean, it's a while back, so I can't recall all the details. But the, I mean, there really is no magic or any um, secret sauce. The only thing I can tell you is just um, I just blast out emails to whoever I can. I mean, the people that I'm interested in, you know, I, I I'm mm-hmm. not, I, I, I'm not a narcissist. I, I just, um, I'm just gonna, I blast out the people who I want to talk to. And it's, it's usually the people who are not, you know, if it's someone who's been doing the rounds, giving 20 interviews, I'm like, I'm, I'm not interested in talking to them. They're just going to say the same thing. I just listened to in the previous interview. So I try to find more obscure people. And so, you know, I just sent, Jim Rogers an email and shockingly got a surprise, you know, uh, a response and okay. And and that was it. No real special sauce there. And, you know, if someone doesn't, I'll send an email once and then um, wait a while if I don't get a response and it's somebody that I particularly like, I might wait weeks, even months and send a second uh, email. And if they say yes, yes. If they say no, you know, after two times, I just give up because I'm not, uh, you know, I, I don't, I studied diplomacy. I, I was around fancy people. I, I feel we are all equal. I don't kiss anybody's butt. I, I'm not, you know, I don't care who you are, how much money you got, your status. Uh, and so I just, you know, once or twice, that's it. Okay, no, bye. I move on. Um, and yeah, I just happened to get a response from Rogers. But something kind of strange happened afterwards. Uh, a couple of months later. I don't know if it was an error in the email system or someone was hacking the email, but I, I got a subsequent email. I think it ruined my relationship with Jim Rogers because I, you know, I was, I told him I was living in Kazakhstan at the time. And then I get an email from Jim Rogers, like weeks or months later saying, I'm really keen on Kazakhstan. And then I'm like, I thought, Okay, I don't know. I mean, how do how do you respond to that? Like he's he's sending another email saying, I'm really keen on Kazakhstan. What am I supposed to say? And I'm like, I respond saying, Oh, well, you know, I'm I'm again, I'm here in Kazakhstan. If there's anything I can do for you, let me know. And then he re- responds angrily saying, like, Do you know who I am? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, 
okay, well, you, you just told me you were keen on Kazakhstan. You know what I'm saying? Like something weird went on and then he just kind of uh, responded with an angry email. And so I haven't dared email him <laughs> since. Maybe he's forgotten about it. I don't know. But he probably gets so, so many emails uh, so many times. You know, I would just say persistence. It's also the luck of the draw. Some people uh, are at a bad time in their lives or they're so busy, your email gets lost. Mm-hmm. And then... You know, many months later or a year later, if you try again, it's like they'll respond right away. And so, yeah, that, that's sort of how it is. Interesting. So doing it the old fashioned way, emails. It's funny. We, uh, I'd say almost 90, 95% of our guests have come through Twitter and almost everyone on the, po- on the podcast knows someone else who's been on the podcast. So everyone's kind of vetted. Um, not that it's like a serious vetting process, but it's kind of like a bit of a, I don't know, just gives it like a bit of a club feel, I suppose. Yeah. I I have to go through Twitter sometimes. Sometimes there's people like for the life of me, I'll spend an hour or two or whatever searching for their email or something. I'll go to their, sometimes on their Facebook page, they've got their email. And then when I can't find it, their DMS are open on Twitter. Sometimes they're not. Um, or sometimes I'll use somebody I know that I personally know that has interviewed them. I don't like to go, I don't like to ask people for, you know, you know what I'm saying for email. So I try to avoid mm-hmm. that. Um, but sometimes, uh, you know, it, it, it makes sense. So yeah, sometimes I have to use Twitter DMS because that's the only way I can reach the person. <laughs> and you, I, I guess you just do a lot of interviews, right? Because geopolitics and empire, how many inter, how many interviews or content you're pumping out? And then, I don't even think we've mentioned the TNT radio is it's like 24 seven. And I guess you do like a segment of that. I, yeah, I got, that's like its own bag of worms. I want to hear how, how that works as well. No, it's been insane. I mean, with the podcast before radio, it was as, as many as I can like when I feel like it, you know, it could have been zero a week or one or two or three a week. I think the most was like four or five per week with the podcast. But that's more like, because I mean, you're the boss, you can do whatever you feel like with the podcast. And with TNT, initially, they, they gave me a three hour, a daily three hour slot. So that's weekdays, three times five. So that's 15 guests per week. And each guest was pretty much like 50 minutes. And so it was nuts. And, it, you know, and it's, it's live. Ref- live radio and you know my first night doing the live radio i got physically ill because i'd never done i've always done pre-recorded like i said i was introverted initially i i I didn't want to do a podcast i didn't want to become some youtuber or become famous i just want to know what's going on in the world i want to know the truth i want to know how things work and the only way was talking to these smart people I'm, i'm not looking out for fame or money and so um i got physically ill my first night in march 20 22 doing the TNT show after I finished the three hours I had got like a headache and a fever but then you know you just you just uh, learn the ropes and now it's easy but um, then they knocked me down from three hours to two hours which is much better 10 10 guests a week now I'm doing and so yeah I do 10 guests I got I try to get some regulars like I got one or two or three regular weekly guests and then you, you build out a contact list and so and I'm also again I you spend a lot of th- most of the time is finding people it's not doing the show, you know, and so most of my time is spent researching good people, uh, figuring out, you know, where they're coming from really quickly and then uh, getting them on the show. Sometimes they've got books. I'll scan through them. Uh, many mm-hmm. of my guests 
say they can't believe that I've actually read their books because many people will just like, you know, get the guest on and talk about the book without reading it. And I, I really do try to read their books. And so, yeah, it's it's like 10 a week on TNT. And then depending on what, what I have time for, for the podcast, like zero or one or two or three. And what do you do if someone cancels on a live? Ah, well, uh, with the podcast is pre-recorded, so not an issue. But uh, with TNT, it's less common now. In the earlier days, it was more common. Uh, and so, you know, because it's, they've, it's TNT radio, they got like their network. And so they could usually last minute find someone in that's in their Rolodex or whatever to hop on. Or it might be another presenter or show host. Uh, you know, and then we could sort of banter for an hour. And so it's not so common these days, you know, as TNT is getting in its groove and, and, and growing a bit. I mean, we, we've had so many, uh, you know, people uh, on a lot of, you know, politicians, uh, scientists. So, yeah, you know, we've we've had good names on. And so it's it's growing. It's still in its infancy, but it's it's trying to become financially sustainable. And so what if you can't get someone last minute, you just like freestyle it? Well, they used to, they used to just, you know, you worst case scenario, they just hit a replay. Uh, you know, there's, uh, I don't know how many of us, there's a number of, because it's 24 seven, as you said, we've got presenters, you know, I'm a presenter, I'm down in Mexico. There's some that are in Europe, in the UK, others in uh, Australia for the different time zones. And so they could just hit a replay, have a previous uh, episode. Uh, or yeah, as you said, uh, I mean, we, we, the presenters we're we're following the news cycle daily, and so we can talk a lot about you know, uh, I'm a news junkie because I, I, I've got a Telegram. It's almost twelve thousand subscribers for my geopolitics and empire podcast Telegram, and my Twitter is like at eighteen thousand. And so I'm, it's basically I, I curate my feed. It's it's what I'm looking at is what I'm posting to my feed, and so with that, you know, there's a lot to talk about. What what is the logistics of a twenty four hour show like TNT Radio? Like, if someone told me, you know, just start doing a twenty four hour show, I'd have no idea how to even set that up. Um, in terms of, I don't even know the broadcasting and the uh, splicing and the advertisements and all that stuff. Like, could you kind of walk us through a bit of the behind the scenes of how that works? I mean, it's pretty crazy. I wouldn't know where to start either. And I, I, honestly, I mean, I can't tell you so many of the details because I'm removed uh, from that. Like I said, they're based in Australia. Uh, they've got initial funding to do all of this. And they've been doing, a, I think, a stand-up job so far. And, and like I said, I, I meet random people uh, like uh, Johnny Hoddle. That's not his real name, but he's he's British. And he's got his own staying, it's called the Staying Free Podcast. And he just happened to move to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. And I recently met him. I was in Vallarta. And then we both were in Morelia, Michoacan, at, at the Greater Reset, uh, which took place during, um, you know, the Davos Great Reset. And, you know, he's been on TNT. And he's like, oh, I love TNT. And, you know, there's people all, all around the world who, um, I think there's a former UK MEP who's got his own show. There was an Australian senator, Malcolm Roberts. Also, he had his own show on TNT. And so... Um, Basically, it's internet radio. So they've got their studio out in Australia. They've got like their studio technicians, the website, and then they've got to get on board a number of presenters, right, to cover all of the slots. That's us. Um, I mean, 
everything gets they've got something called like the comrex or whatever like the stuff that's used for live broadcast and uh so the tech is in australia i connect to the channel and then um the guests connect can connect in various ways right and um you know later the recordings get posted to the podcast platforms you know apple all of the apple spotify google podcasts and we've we're taking donations we've got merchandise um, we've got live call-in now, so people can call in live. We've got an interactive live chat. And so, you know, slowly it's growing. And I think they've just, they just got on board some... I don't watch TV or movies anymore. It's been years. But N- Nicola Carr or something, she was super famous in Australia on some TV show called Neighbors or something. And so she's got, <laughs> she's, uh, got a TNT show. And so, you know, you, you build it slowly, um, you know, word of mouth, organically. That's how I did my podcast uh, as well. And so, yeah. Wow. And how did they approach you and how did you kind of decide that this would be a good fit for you? Because it must be quite a commitment to be like, I will be live on the air five days a week. Oh, man, it is. And it's a pain in the butt. Um, I just bought a Starlink. RV, uh, which covers all of Mexico. You can go in the mountains in the middle of nowhere in Mexico and have excellent uh, internet, like 50 megs download, 30 or something upload anywhere in Mexico. So I bought that as a plan B. But, uh, you know, I've been trapped. Last year, I went to Croatia for three months and the showtime in Mexico was like 6 p.m., mm-hmm. which in Croatia, this is when I was doing three hours. In Croatia time, it was one to four in the morning. Think about that. One to four in the morning. And for three months, I had to do my show in Croatia from one to four in the morning and then sleep till like noon, you know, and then go to the beach. Uh, And so that sort of altered my schedule. And it also limited where I could travel to because I I couldn't visit all of my cousins because um, you don't know if the Internet's going to be, you know, where you go, if you're going to have good Internet to your live show or your car breaks down or the bus breaks down or you miss the flight. And so, you know, I, I could ask for vacation but you know you, you don't want to do that too often um but uh yeah it's, and it goes back to what i'm saying earlier i take this stuff seriously i'm a responsible person i want to do the best that i can i'm enjoying i'm having the time of my life it's you're getting paid to do what you love um to do and so i i'm just you know rolling with it and like i said they, they saw the work that i did with my podcast and they offered me that you know the gig, and I thought about it for a day. And because they pay me for it with the podcast, like I said earlier, every time it's like rolling a, a rock, a stone up a mountain or a hill, mm-hmm. and you're building momentum. But the deep state, you know, the military industrial complex, they knock you down. You know, I, I opened my Patreon. I was slowly getting subscribers on Patreon. I get a message telling me that you need to delete these and these podcasts from the entire internet or we will not unlock your Patreon. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to delete that stuff from the internet. Screw you guys. And, you know, they, they nuke my Patreon, one of my ways of monetizing the podcast. And then, you know, they deleted my most famous YouTube video. Then PayPal last year blocks me. And so it's, each time I try to grow the podcast, they throw a spoke in my wheels. You, you know what I'm saying? And so, you know, TNT comes along and so, okay, for now I have some um, some way to, to, to help out financially. And so, 
meanwhile, I'm trying to figure out with the podcast, you know, I opened up a, a membership option and people still donate and I'm getting sponsors. And so, you know, you roll with the punches. Yeah. I mean, l- let's talk more about the the matrix bringing you down. Like, is it is it typically just about the COVID type stuff or are there, are there other themes that um, that uh, are you're finding to be more challenging? I mean, it's a number of issues. So one was definitely the COVID issue because Patreon said, and it wasn't me because I'm I'm interview. We're just having conversations, you know. We're not doing anything illegal. We're just we're just having shooting the breeze like we are now, you know, <laughs> online. Like, how is that illegal or violent or something? We're just chatting, and so one of the issues is the health stuff. So they would say, "Oh, what you're discussing or your guests." was against CDC or WHO guidelines. So that's one big uh, red line. And then another would be war. Uh, Like I said, uh, the Department of Homeland Security in April of last year rolled out the Disinformation Governance Board, if you recall. That failed, but they tried to roll the... the It's basically the Orwellian Ministry of Truth. So that same week, they rolled out the Disinformation Governance Board. They banned... Mint Press News from PayPal, Consortium News, and me because of Geopolitics and Empire. What's the common theme with Mint Press News, Consortium News, and Geopolitics and Empire? It's war. And I mean, anti-war you know, rhetoric, whether it's Ukraine or Syria or Libya or whatever. So war especially is another issue. And you know, NATO is involved in that. NATO, um, the Atlantic Council, that sort of thing. I, I don't know if I mentioned that um, yeah, 2021, they, they Associated Press wrote that article in conjunction with NATO. And the year before, July of 2020, that same Associated Press journalist, David something is his name, contacted me. He wanted to interview me. He asked me about, he wanted to ask me about who I am, all these personal details about me. And I never, I don't respond to my mainstream media because I knew he was going to do a hit piece. So I, I was in Croatia at the time or somewhere, and I, I didn't respond. And sure enough, a few weeks later, when his next piece came out, it was attacking, you know, quote, conspiracy theorists. And, you know, it's just so it's so predictable. And so, yeah, it's, it's the health issues. It's war. Increasingly, the climate, you know, the climate change narrative um, it hasn't been so hard yet. But that's coming. And then I think, you know, some of the LGBT uh, stuff as well. You know, last week you had Jeremy McKenzie, who was a 14-year Canadian military veteran. He just got a call from Scotiabank um, telling them that they're canceling his account. He had 30 days to, you know, figure his stuff out. He couldn't visit the branch of Scotiabank. He'd be arrested. And then no other bank in Canada will open an account for him. He's got three kids in the mortgage. For what? You know, he's got a podcast as well, but he said some stupid things online. But, is, you know, it's basically the idea. It's my biggest concern is the algorithm ghetto. It's the like the Chinese style social credit system mm. where I see it's coming to every country now. And, you know, if you don't do what the government says and they have an increasingly longer list. So you might think now like, oh, I'm not you know, this or that, but tomorrow they're just going to keep adding stuff to the list. And if you don't do what they say, you know, you can't buy or sell, you can't, you can't, 
bank. You can't, I mean, you saw a little taste of it with COVID. Even in Mexico, you had like states like Tlaxcala, one of the smallest states in Mexico. They mm-hmm. passed statewide the, the COVID digital passports. So if you were not vaccinated, you could not go to the supermarket to buy food. You couldn't even go officially to the public park. I mean, of course, they couldn't police all of that. I guess they'd have like police check your papers at the public park in Tlaxcala in Mexico. But it's pretty crazy. You know, even in the state of Jalisco, where I am, Alfaro, this crazy governor, um, he proposed uh, to enter and exit Jalisco. They wanted to check uh, your vaccine status, your health status. And even to change the state constitution, it's illegal to mandate vaccines. And they are—they were discussing to change the state constitution to make it legal to mandate, you know. So, but the big picture here, you know, today it's, it's the health stuff. Tomorrow they can add whatever they want. I mean, even Samuel Garcia, the governor of Nuevo León, he tried to pass where if you insult him online, this was like a year or two ago, you get 36 hours jail in Nuevo León and a fine. And enough pe- people push back that he removed that article, you know, from the state constitution. And he just, he recently went to one of the meetings, uh, the, uh, the climate UN meetings, and he said he wants to eliminate private vehicle use in Nuevo León. So, yeah, I mean, it's 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 the, this, this algorithm ghetto, you know, this digital technocracy. That's my biggest sort of uh, thing right now. <laughs> It's definitely scary. I saw one today. I'm gonna. I shouldn't. I shouldn't prod you too much with this because uh, uh, I'm gonna get you going. To, but I saw one today that was like, uh, in China, you need to scan your face to take the bus and stuff like that. And all I, all they have to do is say like, nope, you can't take the bus anymore. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's very scary stuff. I mean, look, when I was in Kazakhstan. We would often travel with students to model UNs and usually take the train, like from one city to, to, to uh, what is it, Almaty or um, Astana, which was Nur Sultan, and then they changed back to Astana. It's like a 15, 20 hour train ride. And then we were heading back, and there was a guy in uh, my cab, you know, you share with, it's like four people to the train cab. And there was like a 50 something year old Kazakh. And he was taking like a 40 to 50 hour train ride. And we're like, we asked him like, well, why don't you just take like a one hour flight? You know, because, you know, maybe an overnight 15 hour train ride is okay. But to do like multiple, that's kind of crazy. Just fly. And he's like, I'm banned. The Kazakh government put him on the blacklist because he was like a workers rights activist or something. They, they, They put him on the blacklist. He couldn't fly anymore in Kazakhstan. And so... Yeah, which I'm seeing. See, this is the thing where you're seeing in China now and other places, you've got shops where they you pay with facial recognition or your palm. And again, for me as a Christian, you think about the book of Revelation. It's like um, you can't buy or sell unless you have the mark of the beast uh, on your forehead or your hand. So it doesn't have to be an actual implant because you know facial recognition is your forehead or your palm is your hand. And the idea is it's if you behave well, you know, the social credit. So if you do whatever the government says, and in China, then if you disobey this or don't or you do that, your social credit lowers to such a level where you can no longer buy a train ticket or bus ticket or, you know, enter into this. If there's no cash, see, that that's the biggest thing. If they remove cash, which more and more they are taking away 
um, once they get rid of cash, you've got no option. And if you're in the cashless system, if you're blacklisted for whatever reason, you, you know, you, you can't buy a plane ticket, you can't buy a train ticket, you can't travel, you can't work, you can't buy food. And so <laughs> this is the direction we are headed towards. Yeah, scary stuff. And so um, with you having your PayPal canceled and your Patreon canceled, um, did that lead you to look for alternatives? And how did you uh, fight the matrix, so to speak? I mean, for now, we have um, alternatives. The biggest uh, problem it's caused me is just the issue of momentum because it takes time. You know, I, uh, I, I used a friend. He's got a side company uh, of web developers. And so, you know, it, it, it takes a month to build out the website, to link it to PayPal and Stripe and stuff. And so you can come back, but then they just it just takes a lot of time and momentum, you know. And so there's I use Subscribestar, which is the Patreon alternative. Stripe, I can still use Stripe instead of PayPal. So, you know, you still have stuff, but... It costs a lot of, it's like you get knocked down the mountain and then it takes mm -hmm. a lot of energy and time, all right, to get back up again and get back up that mountain. That's the biggest thing. And, you know, a lot of the people who were subscribed on Patreon or PayPal, they kind of forget, you know, they don't take the time to resubscribe on Subscribestar or um, right. Stripe. So that's the biggest thing. So for now, we have alternatives. Substack is really like the number one game in time game in town right now substack i mean i'm planning to open one as well but everyone's just substack is the thing i don't think it will always be the thing you know before you know it used to be like myspace which becomes facebook it's like a rotation you know and now substack is it there's a lot of people having a lot of financial success using substack and so i you know i i, I did open the locals people are having success with rumble in a lot of these alternatives and so, yeah, for now, it's okay. We've got alternatives. But I think over time, again, a lot of these windows will uh, be closing. But, uh, you know, it's interesting times we live in. And, you know, my, my great-grandfather in Croatia, at the time it was the kingdom of the, the, the Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. He died uh, during World War One. I. I mean, it's a crazy story. World War One ended. This is what I'm told by my mother. World War One ended, but because they didn't have, you know, WhatsApp or, you know, instant communications at the time in that part of Croatia, they didn't get the news that World War One ended. So they kept fighting and firing, you know, lobbing bombs and the bomb fell into the courtyard of his home and killed my great grandfather. And then my grandfather was a Nazi prisoner. You know, for three years, Croatia was under Nazi Croatian rule. And I, I guess my grandfather he was a good man, honest man. He was a partisan, I guess. And so he survived uh, as a, for six months as a Nazi prisoner in the hole in the ground. And then, you know, my parents, my uncle, he's still alive. He fought in the Croatian war in Yugoslavia. And it's like every generation, you know, every single generation, you're fighting evil. You know, Umberto Eco, the Italian uh, intellectual, he talks about ur-fascism, eternal fascism. Every generation has to fight against this evil. And some people, they just shy away from it, you know, and it's just like, nope, you know, this is my experience. I can recognize tyranny. Uh, and, you know, so, yeah. 
Hey everybody, hey everybody, quick break from the podcast to tell you about Language Blend, the best new way to learn Spanish. Language Blend was co-founded by Jake Nomada, friend of the podcast, decade of experience in Latin America, and Jake and his team, they put everything into this program that they wish they had in terms of how to level up quickly with your Spanish language skills. Because the faster that you can get conversationally fluent in Spanish, the better the experience that you're going to have in Latin America. So go to languageblend.com for more information. And has this uh, forced you or made you sort of rethink uh, how aggressive you want to be with the content and sort of tone it down and make it a little bit more PG? No, it's made me want to be more <laughs> extreme. Because again, as a Christian, it's like uh, you don't fear death, you know, because you believe in Christ and, uh, you know, you're going to go to heaven. Your sins have been paid for, atoned, all that sort of stuff. It's like you have no fear. And I look to my forefathers, like my my grandfather, who was a not a freaking Nazi prisoner, you know. And it's like you stand against evil, and I don't have any fear. I mean, look, I I live in narco. I mean, you're here in Mexico. Uh, um, it's not the safest place, uh, you know. I, I had Duncan Tucker. He used to be a Guardian Guardian journalist. I invited him. He used to live in Guadalajara. Uh, he he's now like head of Am- Amnesty International in Mexico, in Mexico City. I invited him twice to guest lecture at my classes at the Tech. I remember one of the stories um, he investigated when he was living in Guadalajara. 30 minutes from my home where I currently live, they he investigated a house where they found barrels of acid where criminals or narcos were dissolving, you know, mm-hmm. human remains. And so th- this is around my home was broken into three times I, when I uh, you know first came to Mexico. And so, you know, it's I've had a co-worker who was kidnapped. Uh, um, so it's like, you know, I've had students whose parents were kidnapped. I mean, they survived, but it's like, you know, this is the, the, the environment you live in. I, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid. I, I just get more like, I think it's the valiant thing to do. The right thing to do is tell the truth, no matter the cost. Um, everyone's fighting their own battle you know, things that they're more passionate about. So it's not like I think everybody has to be doing this. It's what whatever you're inspired to do. But um, I mean, at this point, I don't think it matters because even, if, you know, if everything goes full totalitarian, even if I stop now, I'm already like on the list. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so it really doesn't make any point to, to shut up now because even if things get full totalitarian, I'm going to be sent to the digital gulag or, or real gulag. So I might as well double down, you know? <laughs> yeah, I guess part of it is uh, you're not afraid of the, the online stuff because uh, you're already living on the edge in Mexico. <laughs> yeah, you know, even in Chicago. I mean, I've, I I've haven't had a terrible experience in Mexico, but uh, I was robbed at gunpoint. I was the manager of a supermarket um, five blocks from our my, my family's home. And, you know, I stared, I stared down the barrel of a gun. Three guys came came into the shop. I was the manager. I had access to the safe. They stuck a gun in my face. They kept um, uh, repeating. I, I, I don't feel comfortable saying it, but, you know, the, the N-word reference to black people. They kept saying, if this moves, I'm going to smoke his ass. They kept repeating that to me. Then they stuck the gun in my back and told me to open the safe. And... Um, you know, they, they took like five, six grand in cash or whatever. 
and you know that was my first experience with uh, staring down the barrel of a gun and and being robbed and and that sort of thing. And then later, when I was in Mongolia, uh, I thought it was a good experience because then it hardened me. Because when I was in Mongolia, I was in Ulaanbaatar going for breakfast somewhere, and some Mongolian dude he had a empty bottle of vodka. And as we were passing between two apartment uh, complexes, he smashes the the empty bottle against the wall. And all of a sudden, you know, he's got a sharp object with which, you know, you could stab me or kill me. And he asks for money. And, you know, I, I'd, I'd studied Krav Maga a bit. And the philosophy is the path of least resistance. You want to get out of the situation first uh, as quickly as you can without violence. And so at that point, having been held up at gunpoint in Chicago previously, in Mongolia, I was already, I was not afraid anymore. And I was calculating in a split second all of my options. Do I fight this guy? Do I kick the bottle? What do I do? And then at the time, my Mongolian, I was intermediate, so I could speak Mongolian. And then I realized he wanted some money, like a small amount of money. And I'm like, well, what if I just comply and give him the money, which I did? It's like step by step. It's like kind of like game theory. And I gave him the money. He seemed pleased, content. And then I slowly walked away. And that was the end of it. Now, imagine if I didn't give him the money, he could have started, you know, lunging at me, stabbing me, and it could have turned out differently. And so, yeah, I think sometimes it's good to go through these tough experiences because it really hardens you. And then in the future, you can use that experience to your benefit. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk a little bit about Mexico. Um, Talk about Guadalajara, maybe different areas that you've lived. I guess uh, you worked for the Tech Monterey campus in Guadalajara, right? Yeah, I'm still um, not far from it. That's like, uh, yeah. Well, they got two campuses, yeah, Santa Anita and then Guadalajara. Yeah. But that, uh, so that gig, I guess, wrapped up. But you've chosen to continue living in Guadalajara. Was just curious. Well, why Guadalajara? I mean, lots of listeners are are curious about the city that haven't been yet. Uh, what do you like about Guadalajara? What keeps you there? Well, I, I would leave. Uh, you know, actually, be, the, the plan was after Kazakhstan to go and live in Croatia, um, family, you know, home. But, you know, because of the COVID stuff, uh, I felt the danger was this digital technocracy that is coming, that came and that is still coming, would hit the developed world first, you know, U.S. and Europe, including Croatia. And some of my renowned guests confirmed that. Like I, I interviewed Jewish historian Edwin Black, who wrote the book on how IBM and the Nazis, you know, worked together. IBM created the first paper um, computer to carry out, help the Nazis carry out the Holocaust. He said the same thing, you know. And so I decided to flee back to Mexico to buy time because this sort of stuff would take longer to come to countries, develop, you know, developing countries like Mexico. And so... I just have, I've got my house here in Guadalajara and, you know, my wife and the family for now, she, she has a harder time leaving uh, Guadalajara. So I'm, I'm kind of stuck here, but I am looking to get out to more rural areas um, of, of, of Jalisco. I just hate urban areas. I hate the city. So I, I, I'm not happy anymore living in Guadalajara because I hate cities and cars and urban. I mean, I like having a car, but in general, Guadalajara is, is it's a it's a good it's a nice place. I mean, it's the second biggest city in Mexico. Mm-hmm. The population is like what I don't know, five million or something. It's the Silicon Valley of Mexico. Um, there's a lot going on. You got Chapultepec, that's like the strip uh, downtown where 
you got the cafes and bars and clubs and it's culturally it's a nice place and mm-hmm. i mean there's a lot going on for uh guadalajara uh, and you know you, you can't be surprised you, you can f- for people if you're a digital nomad you can do your thing here um it's a low cost of living i mean in general in mexico it's, that's the thing i'm amazed about my water bill is 50 bucks a year you know uh electricity 5 10 bucks a month internet you know whatever 20 30 bucks and that's it you don't have to pay for heating or cooling because it's so temperate the weather and the food isn't too expensive i mean things are getting more expensive but um you know what else can i tell you about guadalajara so culturally oh and you know like i worked for the tech i had a pretty good deal for mexico in terms of salary and i know other people foreigners as well as mexicans who have very well-paying jobs working for either Mexican corporations, businesses, or international, you know, corporations that have a presence in, in Mexico. So, I mean, you could get hired here and get a good, you know, paying mm-hmm. gig, or you can do your own thing remotely. And so, you know, th- th- that's sort of a, a benefit. And then you've got Lake Chapala, which is an hour away. I think it's got the biggest number of um, expats, like Canadians and uh, Americans, retirees, like 20 or 30,000 or something like that. And so... Yeah. Yep. Done in Ahihik. Yeah. That's cool. You know, the, the thought of like moving to a rural area in Mexico, um, I, I wouldn't mind discussing with, with this with you a little bit, cause it's something we hear very often, uh, from other, uh, podcast guests or just on Twitter or just other kind of, you know, like Latam travel bros I talk to, they're like, Oh, I can't wait to just like buy a farm and, (laughs) you know, all all that type of stuff. But it's really not the same to live in a rural area in Latin America as it is to live in a rural area in North America. Um, And I think uh, like it's um, the, the, it's, it's challenging from both the infrastructure perspective and from a standing out perspective and a little bit of a, a danger perspective. And was just curious, kind of, if you've how far you've you've gone into that thought process. Maybe you've been looking at areas, and um, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's a multitude of factors. I mean, like I uh, already explained, my past experience. I mean, you can drop me off literally anywhere on the planet; I'd be happy to be there. You know, I even thought about traveling to Antarctica, uh, but then you know, it's it's kind of hard to. They're not too many. Options. I feel like that's kind of Disneyified, though. You know what I mean? It's just cold, and but you got the parka, and like you're kind of good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, but I just, I, you know, I, I like I said, I live in the Gobi, Mongolia. For me, is like the edge of the planet, and then Kazakhstan, yeah, yeah, and yeah. then, and then you know, I, from Croatia to Mexico to the U.S., and then I just love, I just love experiencing all these crazy things. And like I said, I'm, I, I'm, I'm happy to be alone, like with myself. I can read, I can entertain. I don't get bored in that sense. And then. So rural Mexico, I mean, it's a number of factors. First of all, there's a lot of people, like you said, they have this cartoonish sort of Disneyland film, Hollywood vision of it. And, some, and you know, when I was at the Greater Reset Conference five days in Morelia, you know, a couple of weeks back, they talked about this, you know, people building communities. They've got the success rate of a, a failure rate of a business. Businesses have like a 95% failure rate. And so do these communities that people put together and because they start disagreeing over stupid things. 
so you've got to have a number of traits. Like one of them is that you're happy being in a place with low population density. Like I am. You can throw me in the Gobi for a year or whatever. I'm, I'm perfectly happy. So uh, you know what I'm saying? Like you're not going to miss McDonald's or Starbucks or hanging out with this or that person. So you have to be of that personality where you can be alone. And second of all, you can't be like that typical stupid American, which you should in general, you shouldn't be like in Mexico, you know, where you always dress in shorts and you're loud and, you know, you have to integrate with the locals, see how they behave on some level, mimic that behavior, speak Spanish, eat the local food. You, you, you get why I'm saying like integrate locally. And that's how I am as well. You know, I learned Mongolian. I ate what the Mongols ate, camel and horse and, and camel milk and all of that. I love that stuff. And so <laughs> so you have that sort of mentality. And then, um, yeah, r- rurally. Like I said, what's holding me back for now is my family, but I'm, I'm trying to work at it. And, you know, rurally, yeah, the further you go out rurally can be more dangerous because there's less law and order, which is more centered around the cities. So the further out you go, I guess you get more dangerous. Depends where you are, you know, geographically in Mexico or whatever country. Um, so you have to think about that because then if there's less police and law and order, increased chance you know criminals or narcos can just raid your property you know kill you rob you steal rape your wife whatever and so um yeah all these different things you have to think of but i mean i've consulted with people and it's really what you're looking for i mean i've consulted with people because i've got a consultation option if people want to talk about podcasting or expatriating or whatever they can pay to chat with me um and people from different parts of the world who are who are looking for different things. You know, some people want to be at the beach, like in Vallarta, on the West Coast, or on the East Coast, like Cancun and Tulum. Others like Mexico City. Others like the Chapala area. Others like Chiapas, like near the jungle, or Oaxaca, you know, more Mm -hmm. temperate uh, climates. And so uh, it really depends on many different personal uh, variables. Yeah, for sure. Do you have any... uh... Have you thought about just going out to the coast, like going out to Vallarta or something? Yeah, I mean, I've told my wife, like, since I can work online, we could be living at the beach, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it's a whole different ballgame when you got kids and then you're raising your kids, you know. Um, you need help from friends and family and different social networks. And so, you know, just something James Guzman spoke about at the Greater Reset at his talk. At some point, you got to start having roots i know a lot of people who listen to my latin life it's like single i you know you've got a great telegram channel which i follow some of it doesn't apply to me anymore <laughs> but you know mm-hmm. when, when you're single and you know you're looking for women and stuff that's a whole different ball game but then you know at my age you got kids you got family you're dedicated to your work and you know, i also happen to be a christian i attend the local church and it's like um this is kind of what you're focused on raising kids in a healthy manner and then you, your biggest network, my biggest network is in Guadalajara. And so to go to like Vallarta or something, you're starting from scratch. So then I, I mean, find it's, still, it's still Jalisco though, but so there's some, right, there's some yeah, overlap, yeah. but yeah. Uh, yeah, I get what I you're know you mean. Though. I know you mean too. Right? Yeah. Then I have to, you know, I have to find a new church, build new relationships because, you know, uh, you know, family helps with taking care of the kids when, when you got to go do some errand or something, you, you, you get true. what I'm saying, you know? So, mm. uh, yeah, but it's also hotter though, um, Vallarta, but 
Yeah, I, I, I've been telling my wife. You know, that's the cool thing with TNT. I was uh, thinking of going to visit James out in San Miguel for a week. You know, we get an Airbnb for a week. We just hang out, enjoy San Miguel. I do my TNT show in the evenings. You know, just I can take my Starlink if there's no internet. And so, yeah, I can just, we, we can sort of do that now, go around Mexico. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, in the future, yeah, Vallarta might be an option or somewhere on the beach. And like I said, there's so many people in the alternative media, independent media. I mean, so many people moving down to Mexico. It's incredible. Like Daniel Estilin, former a Russian FSB. He had his own show on Russia Today. He sold like 7 million books. He's down in Cancun. Josh Sigerson, World Alternative Media, is out in Vallarta. Derek Bros is in Morelia. I'm here. James is here. I mean, just so many people <laughs> down in Mexico. Yeah, let's talk a bit about the alternative media space. You uh, you kind of gave it to me as a potential theme for this uh, conversation. And it's something that I'm not super, super familiar with. Like, what's, what's sort of the landscape of uh, what you're referring to as alternative media right now? And do people, how do people sort of... Um, how do how does the audience discover this media, and then how does the 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 hosts and the owners of these platforms how do they sort of connect and and form communities? I mean, a lot, a lot. Some of the bigger names, like when it comes to alt media, is you know you've got like Alex Jones of Infowars in Texas. With he was in the late nineties and in the early two thousands, really coming to prominence, and then you know like David Icke out in Britain and. And it's not that, you know, I don't like David Icke. He says some things that I agree with and then other things you know, where he says he believes the elites are literally shape-shifting lizards. It's like, sorry, no, you know. The, the, the idea is you don't agree with everything. It's more nuanced, right? And so um, you, you you pick pick and choose. And so you've got like the whole Infowars thing and then David Icke and then there's just a whole slew of... Okay, that stuff's like very alternative. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, you know, Infowars is... It, You'd be surprised. I mean, it's worldwide very uh, influential. I mean, in all, all different other parts of the world, Infowars has had a huge um, impact. And even David Icke now, he's banned from traveling to all of Europe, all of the Schengen countries, which is pretty insane. And they actually, they couldn't give a reason for it. Like one of my friends in Netherlands, who's a podcaster there, Rico Browers of the Podcast Podcast, stand-up guy, he uh, covered the trial uh, that Ike had, uh, I think, earlier in January or December. And the Dutch court couldn't give a reason for not allowing him to enter uh, Netherlands. I mean, this is the craziest thing. It's like the end of democracy. And so he can't travel um, anywhere in Europe. But yeah, I mean, alt media, you've got people that in alt media. I mean, you'd be surprised. I mean, that's one of the reasons they're deplatforming us because a lot of people are listening. I mean, I'd be, I get surprised... Uh, at the, you know, I get messages from people from all parts of the world, you know, that listen to me and it's just, wow, I did, I couldn't, you know, I had no idea. Uh, like I said, I'm having lunch with listen with some of my listeners in Croatia when I go there on vacation or here in Mexico, you know, or in the U S or with some of my guests, you know, I get to meet them in real life, which is crazy. And, um, yeah, I mean, and some of the people they're, 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 they use different platforms that they're big on, you know, through Substack or their websites or a podcast, or they've got more bigger multimedia operations or they're, you know, journalists like Whitney Webb 
is very well known. She publishes books and like a blog. And then The Last American Vagabond is pretty well uh, known. And so, yeah, they, they use a hodgepodge of these different um, platforms. But um, w w we wouldn't be attacked by the Department of Homeland Security if we weren't having an effect, right? You know, so... <laughs> Jeez. So where do you, where do you find these people? Like if I want to find the last of American vagabond, what's the, what's the best way to, to do that? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like each, each, it's sort of part of your journey searching, depending on the topics that you're interested in learning more about in politics or, you know, you mentioned Jim Rogers and then you listen, you know, I've interviewed Peter Schiff I, I, or Mark Faber, the Swiss investor mm -hmm. who lives out in Thailand. And so, you know, or, you know, Doug Casey. And so whatever sort of topics you're interested in, um, you know, I, I use bookmarks. I just create like different folders and I, I bookmark or, you know, newsletters I subscribe. Um, but you, you sort of, there, there's no one place to list them all, you know? And so you kind of just start up, you, you follow them, you end up following them on Twitter or, or Telegram. I'm a big fan of Telegram. So t Twitter and Telegram and email lists or newsletters and then i use a lot of bookmarks as well by topic to you know bookmark the different uh websites and so you, you sort of put together your own dish you know your own sort of custom dish of what you want to mm -hmm. consume and so in guadalajara you mentioned it's the uh silicon valley of mexico tons of technology companies there tons of business in general really um have you made um, any inroads into sort of connecting with people in the the tech space in Guadalajara? Is that is that interesting to you as well? When it comes to the tech space, well, um, not myself particular. Like I know people who work in different um, corporate areas. Yeah, you know, my friend, like I said, my friend, uh, he used to teach with me at the tech. Uh, he doesn't teach anymore. He does. He's an IT guy, and then he had a side business which. Um, he built the website uh, mm -hmm. for me, um, but uh, you know, like I'm doing my podcasting stuff, so I don't have um, much to do when it comes uh, w with the tech. But you know, you've got a lot of startups doing interesting things here in in, in Guadalajara. So I mean, anyone you know, I, I you know, I'm looking actually to hire. I'm I'm looking for an assistant, a full time assistant now to help me with my podcast. That's that's bilingual that can do some of the tech stuff. And I'm going to be looking locally uh, in Guadalajara. I think there's a huge pool, you know, of, of talent. And so, um, yeah, they've got these technology parks. I think they got a couple in Guadalajara, these technology parks. You know, you've got, um, is it in Intel? I think they've got, a, you know, Oracle and Intel. I actually, I had dinner at the home of the head of CEO, uh, the, the head of uh, Oracle in Mexico, because my wife used to work at the tech as well. And, you know, they had a lot of these overlapping projects between the tech companies and the tech, uh, you know, contests and things. And so, yeah, for, I mean, it just, I, I meet, I met all, I, I just realized I was at the, I was at the home of the head of Oracle Mexico uh, <laughs> here in Guadalajara. And so, yeah, you've, you've got a lot of stuff uh, going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've spent a fair amount of time in Guadalajara myself. I, I definitely enjoy it. Um, definitely a, a hidden gem within Mexico. And 
being in Mexico City right now, I can tell you I prefer to be in Guadalajara because it's just um, sort of cheaper, less gringos. I feel like more culture. Um, there's a there's a lot of reasons I like it better. It just kind of feels more at home. I mean, it's smaller, like you said. It's cheaper. Mexico City's huge. Uh, Guadalajara is much smaller. I mean, I was in Morelia recently. The little that I saw Morelia didn't impress me. I thought Guadalajara was nicer. And you could go on the outskirts. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, just using that example of going to a rural area. Um, one of the things that inspired me, you know, a friend of a friend, we went to visit their parents' home on the weekend. And they're about half hour outside of, Mex- of Guadalajara, half hour. So it's not like really that rural. You just get out of the city a bit. And it feels like you're in the middle of nowhere. I mean, that's the thing about Mexico. Like, you don't have to go two or three or four hours to get really rural. You just get out of the city, and it feels like you're in the middle of nowhere. And we went to their home, half hour outside of Guadalajara, and they got their own nice plot of land. They've got, like, a home built. They've got, like, chickens, eggs. Mm-hmm. They've got avocado, you know, black blueberries, corn, pineapples they've got their own well i mean that's a great the end of the world as we know it you know <laughs> the scenario you don't have to go full like uh into the boon- run for the hills half hour outside of guadalajara you got a well you got um chickens you know, probably get you know whatever rabbits or whatever they've got like fruits and vegetables you're set like easy you know and so i thought that was pretty uh cool they're sort of my model uh for that sort of thing <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you've been in Guadalajara a long time now, like five plus years, almost 10 years, uh, you know, between a couple couple uh, stays. Yeah, it's been, well, minus Kazakhstan to be, what, 13, about a decade, a decade now. And I mean, it gives you all of the amenities. Um, you can pretty much live with most of the amenities you'd get, like in the U.S. You know, I look at my neighbors here. It's my, you know, everyone's got good cars. Maybe, that, you know, you can... According to your taste, you can have whatever, you know, five, I, I have, a, I live in the middle class area, but, you know, five minutes down the street, you've got the multimillionaires who live in their high security uh, gated communities with like big, big U.S. style houses. And, you know, everyone's, I, the, the streets are strewn with Amazon packages. Everyone's got their Amazon, their Netflix. You've got, you know, Domino's, Carl's Jr., Little Caesars, Starbucks, uh, Costco, Walmart, Sam's. I mean, you name it. Uh, I you know, Supplements I order from iHerb without a problem. I get stuff here. And it's just <laughs> like, you've got everything you'd want in the U.S. Just for now, it's much cheaper, uh, you know, cost of living. And it's, I mean, the U.S. cost of living is, is pretty crazy for me. It's, here, like, if I lose my TNT show, I mean, I, I, can, I can coast, you know, for, a, for at least a year. You know, I can like chill out and work part time or not even work if you don't, you know, if you're smart about your finances, if you, if you don't have debt. And so um, you couldn't do that in the U.S. You'd be have to be scrambling, you know, for 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 work. And so, yeah, Guadalajara is nice. Um, but, you know, there's there's a lot of places in Mexico that are nice up north. Baja. I like to make it out to Baja, California or people in Yucatan, Merida, Veracruz, Cancun, uh, It'd be nice to make a venture down into Oaxaca or, or Chiapas, you know, San Cristobal. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just so many parts of Mexico that are fascinating. Mm-hmm. 
You know, one thing we do have to uh, ask you about on this episode is becoming a Mexican citizen, because I think uh, tons of our listeners are temporary residents, and we're all very hopeful to get our Mexican citizenship one day, but definitely a lot less anecdotes of people actually getting it. Not that it's difficult, just just the fact that, you know, um, it's it's grown a lot in popularity to get the residency, and it t- kind of takes like five years to get the citizenship or could be less, obviously, if you have a kid or whatever in, in Mexico. But um, yeah, tell us a little bit about your your process, your journey to Mexican citizenship. How was that for you? You must have been proud when the day came. Yeah, I mean, there's basically, I had two options. So as you said, I think if, if you live basically for five years in Mexico, you get citizenship. Or if you marry a Mexican, two, after being married for two years, Mm-hmm. To a Mexican, you get uh, a citizenship. So either way, two years married or five years living here. Uh, the temp- the residency is, is, I don't think it's difficult to get. You get the temporary residency. Um, I think there's different variations where you get one temporary residency version where it allows you to work in Mexico and another that doesn't allow you to work. I mean, if you're working remotely or whatever, then you don't you don't need to be allowed to work in Mexico, right? So you can get the one year temporary residency, and I think you know it's just simply renewed for four years or whatever, and then you get your permanent residency, straight shot, like it's not difficult, uh, and then eventually you can get your uh, Mexican citizenship. And so, um, yeah, getting married or staying here for five years and. Um, yeah, and once you become a citizen, you know, I got my parents' permanent residency. And so, um, yeah, once you become a citizen, I guess you, if you wanted, you could buy property on the coast without using, you know, the, what do you call it, Fideo Comisio or trust. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a good benefit of citizenship for sure. Yeah. And once you get residency or whatever, you can open bank accounts and you can come and go as you please. You know, even with permanent residency, you get it for life, it doesn't expire. Um, come and go own property, open bank accounts, easy. And uh, well, the thing with the naturalized Mexican citizen, they told me was, I thought this was interesting. I'm not allowed to run for certain political offices uh, as a naturalized citizen. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, what did they say? If I'm not in Mexico for a period of five years at all, I could potentially lose my citizenship which i thought was kind of shocking you know like if i end up going to croatia and for half a decade i never visit mexico they could maybe in theory take away my citizenship and when i did the test i mean it was funny you know i'm i speak spanish more or less fluently of course with some errors but you know generally speak spanish and i I, they gave you history test five multiple choice questions at the time i i aced them all i mean i was teaching mexican history at the tech de monterey so easy peasy uh, I, I joke with them. I th- after I did the, lang- you know, I mean, they didn't even give me a language test. They saw I spoke Spanish. I did the five multiple choice history questions, and that was it. And I told them like, "What about the last test?" And they're looking at me, uh, you know, a bit dazzled, like, you know, where you put me in a room, and I eat. I'm supposed to eat the habanero chile <laughs> w- without breaking a sweat to prove that I'm, you know, Mexican. And they just laughed. And but they did tell me this was five years ago when I got my naturalization that um, they were going to change the rules. I guess that's how it is now where it wouldn't be five multiple choice questions anymore. It was going to be like an open essay 
you'd have to read like two entire books on Mexican history and then write like, you know, do this open test uh, to get your citizenship. So it's like it might be harder for some people <laughs> now. But it's, it's, you know, it's, it's well worth like even though I could have done the paperwork myself, I just hate paperwork. I just I paid someone. It's not really at the end of the day, it's not that expensive. I, I paid a guy to help speed up, you know, to do all the paperwork and appointments. And yeah, there's there's people that can sort of help you out with that. Did you have to do the uh, national anthem? No, I didn't have to do the anthem. Do you know it? I, I think you you caught me here. No, I I I don't know that. I mean, when at the Tech de Monterey, every at least once a semester, we would all have to come out before the flag and sing the national anthem um, at the Tech. But it's been so long that um, no, I, I'm I'm sorry, you, you you got me there. I I'm gonna have to go back and review the Mexican national anthem now. <laughs> Yeah, no worries. They they kind of make fun of me and they say that that's like my 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 final step is you got to do the the Mexican national anthem and then some states have like a state anthem as well. Like I know Veracruz has a state anthem and probably some other ones. Yeah, I mean, how many? I yeah, I'm sure you catch some Mexicans that don't know the anthem, but um, and I I made the again you, you forget these things. You know, when I was actively teaching the Mexican history, I knew a lot, and I would joke to the Mexican students are like, I know more Mexican history than you at the time, which was true. You know, they knew very little. I'm like, you know, everything from the past couple of centuries in Mexico. Um, now I, I was just losing. Yeah, I, I guess I lost my point there. But yeah. <laughs> do you have a do you have a particular favorite topic within Mexican history? There's some fascinating um, stuff. Uh, you know, I Skyped into my tech classroom. Jefferson Morley, he's a journalist who um, deals a lot with the JFK stuff. He declassified the documents, which are available now at the National Security Archive, which is run by George Washington University. He wrote the book, Our Man in Mexico. I highly recommend it about how at least three Mexican presidents were CIA agents. It's, it's not conspiracy theory. It's, it's documented, declassified documents. Uh, Diaz Ordaz, I believe, Luis Echeverria, uh, and I forget the other one, like it's in, the, in the time period of the 1950s and 60s. They're actual CIA code names. They were president of Mexico and CIA agents paid at the, time, at the hmm. same time. And they had code names Li Tempo, like Li Tempo 5, Li Tempo 6. Uh, and so, again, for me, that's absolutely fascinating that you've got Mexican presidents who are CIA agents, and they're doing the bidding, of course, of the American Empire, of the U.S. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, the 20th century is pretty fascinating when it comes to Mexican history. Interesting. I did not think you would say 20th century. I thought you'd be uh, more of like a, I don't even know, like a earlier eras but this uh i'm looking at this book this is a very good pick hit us with some more picks uh for re some more recommendations rather for um mexican history or other uh great underrated books. Here's a, yeah here's another one it's called uh i haven't even read it yet I've, I've just scanned through it i've had it for a couple of years on my bookshelf you know how it is when you buy all these books but I'll, uh this what is it hold on i got it here uh the secret war in mexico and so that sort of tells you more about the real Mexican history. You've got 
you know, Alfredo Jalife, he's a left-wing um, Mexican commentator, but he still says uh, he does good analysis. Um, yeah, I don't know when it comes to Mexico. That that's the that's really what comes to mind. And you know, another fascinating part for me is the North American Union idea. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people will say a conspiracy theory. I, I'm sorry. No, this is fact. Uh, you know, um, I've said the EU is the model for the rest of the world. It's the model, it's the blueprint for world government and for technocracy. And they want to replicate that to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you've had Robert Pastor, who was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He visited the tech frequently. I met him twice. He visited our campus twice promoting the idea of the North American community or basically North American Union. They call him the father of the North American Union. I, I had the last living interview with him, I believe. I actually, I used his textbook in my classrooms as a sign reading. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed him December 2013, and he passed January 2014 from cancer. And, oh. um, and recently you had AMLO, president of Mexico, last couple months ago. It's, and it's on Lopez Obrador's official government website, the transcript. He literally said like three, four months ago, Lopez Obrador, he was in talks with Secretary of State Blinken, that he wants to copy the European Union. I've been saying this for 20 years because once you understand, you read all of these boring white papers and you understand all of these, you know, international relations, political science, globalist stuff, mm-hmm. you know their end game. And then you can just sort of track it. It's, it's, it's easy. You read the script. You know what's going to happen. And AMLO comes out, sure enough, three months ago saying, you know what? We, and I, this is not extra. It's, it, you can read the transcript. He said, we want to copy the European Union and integrate Canada, USA, and Mexico. And then literally a few weeks later, Rafael Correa, the ex-president of Ecuador, gives an interview. And he says, you know what? We want to copy the EU model for South America. We want to create a regional currency called the SUR, which Lula of Brazil is now. He, uh, he just signed an agreement with Argentina. They want to create a Latin American union mm-hmm. with a common currency called the SUR. Mm-hmm. So you, you see what I'm saying? You've already got the African Union. Uh, you've got the Southeast Asian Union. And Putin and my former, technically my former employer, Nazarbayev of Kazakhstan, the Eurasian Union was Nazarbayev's idea from in 1994. And so you've got Putin and Nazarbayev pushing the Eurasian Union. And so, again, for me, that's another fascinating part of history. And some people may have heard of Bilderberg. You've got, uh, since 1954, this annual meeting of elites called Bilderberg. Mm-hmm. And um, in 1980, some of their meeting minutes were um, uh, leaked. You can find them on Public Intelligence or WikiLeaks. And the 1980 Bilderberg meeting discussed, so you can track it easily. 1980, they discussed creating a North American community, 1980. And then 1989, Canada and U.S. create bilateral free trade agreement. 1994, Mexico joins to create NAFTA, right? Uh, Mexico, U.S., Canada, NAFTA. Mm-hmm. And then in the 2000s, you've got like a security par- prosperity partnership, they keep pushing this idea. And then now you've got NAFTA 2.0, USMCA uh, agreement. Uh, and that's, I mean, that, and now guess what, why do you think they're going to have the next World Cup in North America? 
It's going to be in three countries, Canada, USA, and Mexico. Again, they're, they're, they're pushing culturally this idea of North America. And they used to have, like you have the UN model United Nations. Yep. For, a t- that for a time, they used to have in uh, US, Canada, and Mexico a North American uh, um, sort of like equivalent of model United Nations. So, you know, the, this is the idea. So, you know, you got the Mexican CIA agent presidents, you've got the North American agenda. And so that's where it's sort of things are, are, are headed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm deeply interested in this I- idea as well of the North American Union. Um, do you think it's necessarily a bad idea? You know, someone that I, again, a really famous person in alt media, G. Edward, you know, G. Edward Griffin, who wrote Creature from Jekyll Island? Yeah, yeah, I'm aware of him. Yeah, he took me out to lunch like 12 years ago. <laughs> I used to be, uh, you know, that's one. That's a huge book, Creature from Jekyll Island. You know, Ron mm-hmm. Paul and others love mm-hmm. that. But um, Robert Kiyosaki, huge fan of Edward Griffin in that book. He's always talking about that book. Um, yeah, so he took me out to lunch, Edward Griffin, because I was a volunteer for his website. I happened to be passing through L.A., like in 2011, and then he was like, oh, let me take you out to lunch as a thanks for helping me out. And um, what was my point? You asked me, uh, <laughs> what did you, what was the last thing is you it, asked? Is it, is it oh, necessarily a yeah. bad thing, like further yeah. economic yeah, yeah. integration? Yeah, uh, I, I'll, I'll take what G. Edward Griffin said at, at, at some years ago in one of his many documentaries or interviews. He said, this idea of, you know, let's say world government or globalization or union or whatever, it's like anything, you know, it's you, you take a butter knife. I always use this example with my classes or guns. You know, I'm pro guns, pro firearms. I've got a license in the U.S. You could use the gun to protect yourself, to hunt for food or, or you know, murder someone. You can use the knife to spread butter onto your bread or stab someone. And it's the same idea. Like many things, platforms or technologies are, are neutral, but it's depending how they're used. So you, know, you could have a wor- good world government or a bad world government. You know, my idea is that the only time we'll have a good world government is when Christ comes back to reign, right? Uh, but given that man is evil by nature, in my view, and we've got these crazy globalists running around, uh, you know, in, in, like in many, in some ways, the European Union has benefited, uh, allowing people to travel, giving grants for certain stuff. But I, I feel like over time, like the long, long game, the mask will co- come off. You get what I'm saying? It's like it will over time become more tyrannical. And I, I feel like that's what we're seeing with the EU. Croatia just lost our kuna, our national currency this month, and we mm-hmm. took the euro. And already um, you're seeing it's becoming more expensive. Anytime a country takes on the euro and they drop their national currency, they lose their sovereignty. They Everything becomes more expensive. And then the EU puts all these more, more and more of these crazy tyrannical uh, rules. You had that German journalist, Alina Lip, reporting from Ukraine. Uh, and just because she was reporting differently from Brussels, Washington's perspective, they froze her bank account and her mother and father's bank account. How is that, you know, when it comes to Europe, EU, US, they talk about democracy. And, and liberty. What, what, what country is this uh, person from? She's German. German. And she, she's living in Donbass or Ukraine and just, you know, reporting differently on the news. But the fact that Germany turns off not only just her bank account for doing, you know, reporting, but her mother, her parents, 
uh, bank account. So, you know, going back to North American Union, it would benefit initially a lot of lower people, people with the lower economic status, you know. Um, but over time, it would just tend to centralize power. Uh, so initially, it would be nice. But over time, it becomes just uh, worse and worse. And you know what NAFTA did in the 90s? It got 2 million Mexican farmers from rural areas. And you can see the effects to this day. I see it on the street every day. 2 million Mexican farmers were put out of work because of the NAFTA rules, which uh, decreased the price of corn. So it made it pointless for these Mexican farmers. It, it, it made it impossible for them to be farmers anymore because the price they dropped the price of corn so much, I think intentionally, to drive people from rural areas to the urban areas because you're more, you know, they can control the urban areas. And so now you see in Mexico people on, you know, the street, the street corners selling anything that they can sell to make a buck to make a living because they can no longer make a living in the rural areas. And I think that was intentional because, you know, they want to put us in these urban smart cities where they can control us. Right. And they don't, they well, don't. you know what? But like, so with the North America thing, with Canada, you have natural resources. With the U.S., you have um, just a, a developed financial system. And with Mexico, you have labor. So when you bring together resources, labor, and I guess human capital in the U.S., isn't that kind of good that you're kind of uh, it sort of complements each other well, and then we combine, and then we're, we're sort of this bigger body of around 500 million, and then we're much more competitive against Asia and uh, and other uh, economic blocks. No, I mean, you're, you're right. You're seeing a lot of nearshoring now back to Mexico, I mean, which is good. You know, automotive plants are being built. Uh, they're bringing back the semiconductor plants they're building in the U.S. I think they said that, what did they say? Mexico is... Mexico might be like 13%. I don't know if it was auto manufacturing or, or semiconductors. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the two. But yeah, like you said initially. But my fear, again, is having a regional union, you are eradicating nationalism, national countries. That that goes back to my thought with the, the national anthem. You were talking about Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, countries are like made up anyway, right? Because okay, well, yeah. It's just interesting that wherever you're born, you have to learn that national anthem, but not any of the other national anthems of any of the other countries. Like, why do you have to learn this one, but not the other ones? You know what I mean? Or it's just like, a, it's just, I'm sure you of anyone would just consider it just like a, a piece of propaganda, right? I mean, in some ways, yes and no. Like I said, I, I identify probably as a Croatian um, because that's my blood and my tribe that goes back many, many centuries. Um, but um I was going to say that there's just so many things going on. I'm losing my train of thought. But uh, the idea is, well, my point was that during the pandemic, I, I, I realized that nation states don't exist anymore. And, and that's why now when we have like a national holiday, Mexican or Croatian or American, where you've got, you know, Mexicans or Croats bringing out the flag and singing uh, patriotic songs, I'm sort of disdaining that now because the pandemic showed us that we're living now in world government. We don't have any more countries because all of the politicians of all countries are now following the lead of these supranational entities. So our countries don't exist anymore. So I, I cannot bear anymore to whip out my Croatian or Mexican flag and sing a patriotic song 
because we don't have anymore our own sovereignty or agency because my local retarded governor from Jalisco is doing, you know, whatever the international corporations uh, tell him to do. And so we don't have uh, national sovereignty anymore. And so my point is that these regional unions, by de facto, they're supranational. And Mm -hmm. it's basically world government. Because once you have these 10 or so regional unions, North American Union, South American Union, European Union, African Union, I believe the the Abraham Accords are the way towards the Middle Eastern Union. I mean, you've got many articles going back talking about creating a Middle Eastern Union and Arab NATO and a common currency for the GCC countries. Like I said, Eurasian Union, Asia Pacific. Uh, And so that is then your foundation for world government. So I, I agree with you. Like in the near term, it's beneficial. And these are like the new rules of the game when it comes mm-hmm. to globalization. There's the Arab League, by the way, already. Yeah, um, yeah. That's, and then that's the, one of, mm-hmm. there's the CARICOM as well in the Caribbean. Yeah, those are all, I think, like iterations or attempts. Because sometimes, you know, not everything goes according to plan. They try with these different variations and one of them works or they merge two of them together. And, you know, it's like an experiment. Mm-hmm. How do you think it's going to play out for the North America one? Because I guess that's... In some ways, the one you're closest to, you know, you're you're an American uh, Mexican citizen. Um, do you think it's just like a slow path to like gradual integration and um, you know a bit more fluidity, or or do you see something um, like more more drastic, larger steps, or what are what are some of your your takes on it? Yeah, I don't have. I, I'm I'm constantly trying to figure that out. I don't have an answer, but you know, the EU took many decades to put together. It was financed, you know, a lot of people don't know that the EU was financed by the CIA and the State Department. So, you know, it was an American imperial project, the EU, that's documented again. Um, But um, I think the game changer and everything that we're talking about, and some of my guests have confirmed this, that technology, you know, technology can really accelerate a lot of things that are happening that they couldn't, they would take a much longer time decades, even centuries in the past to, to happen. But with mm-hmm. technology, theoretically, uh, I think a lot of things can happen quicker. But even still, like a North American Union, I mean, it would take it would it would take time because you have to convince the population, you know, the Mexicans, the U.S. Americans and Canadians. Um, you know, there's a lot of Americans who are very you know, patriotic U.S. Constitution and stuff that this won't fly uh, with them. But, you know, there's there's talks, again, of a second U.S. civil war. We see a lot of polarization. And, you know, the powers that be, they have a lot of pressure points. So, you know, you get the cartel, the the drug trade. And I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the idea that, you know, CIA, the Mexican government and the CIA are involved, DEA, in the drug trade with the cartels. So they could, you know, in other... Look, the EU was created out of World War II, of a war scenario. You might not have, you know, they could use a war in North America, or they could use the, you know, the equivalent of a war would be like, you know, war with the cartels. You know, the cartels versus the Mexican government, they could move up into the U.S. and they could be, it could be declared a war, you know, with the cartels. They could use that scenario to try and advance our North American Union or, you know, it could just take many years, many, many decades. 
they are slowly progressing. You know, it could it could be economic collapse. They could say all of a sudden, look, the economic system collapsed, and we need the Amero or the digital dollar or whatever. You know, CBDCs are coming in, and so I think they've got different scenarios or pressure points that could work. But otherwise, yeah, it could take it, it could take a while. Although technology, I think, could make it happen quicker than it did with the European Union. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I'm not totally against it. Um, I feel like uh, I feel like getting you talking about sort of like conspiracy theory stuff is definitely one of your uh, one of your um, facts. what's the word? Conspiracy facts. Conspiracy facts. That's like one of your um, uh, specialties is just name dropping guys and being like this guy, Robert Pastor, that guy. Da, da, da. Well, I mean, I, I met. I mean, Robert Pastor is high level. You know. A, Official, mm-hmm. like he was, you know, he's not some, you know, th- these are the real people. I and I, like I said, I met a lot of these people in real life. So it's no, like, no, it's true. I mean, I, I was just kind of looking at his Wikipedia quick. He was uh, married to the daughter of uh, uh, someone big. Sorry, I jumped off the page to something else, but um, and he had like a full. He, you know, he went to Harvard and stuff. But yeah, the um, yeah, <laughs> kind of losing my train of thought here. But I mean, um, yeah, I wanted to, I'm sure our, a lot of our audience would have liked it, but I don't know. I try to run a, a clean ship and it's tough for me as well. You know, we don't, there, there are certain topics that I try to stay away from here. We just try to have a, mm-hmm. uh, we, we let, we let the audience, uh, leave it up to their imagination and then go do their own research, put it that way. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I sort of do that on my podcast where I have people come on, I don't know, you know, I don't I frequently don't agree with everything my guests say. Uh, I'll usually agree with them on a certain point. Uh, you know, I, I, I use the easiest, most recent example. I have a, a Canadian activist. Uh, I've interviewed him, and we agree on the anti-war stance, but then he's very much, you know, on the climate narrative, which I disagree with. Um, and you know, he'll mention the climate thing in passing in the interview, and I'll just kind of ignore it and. I don't want I don't want to debate, you know, so it's like, yeah, people I, I, I feel listeners can figure things out on their own and come to their own personal conclusions. You know, I'm not telling them what to believe, take it or leave it, take parts of it, discard mm-hmm. others, you know, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, this has been an awesome episode, man. Um, thank you so much for your time and telling us a little bit about your personal background and uh, how, you, how you got to where you are, your life in Mexico, and, um, you know, I guess uh, some some themes that people can go uh, take a look at, some books people can go take a look at as well. Um, everyone, of course, needs to go check out the uh, Geopolitics and Empire podcast. You definitely have had an all-star lineup of guests over there. Um, so I guess this is the point in the episode where you can kind of direct the audience to uh, wherever, wherever you want to to point them to next, the socials, et cetera. Yeah, just, you know, the, the website, geopoliticsandempire.com. Again, people may not know. If you type it into Google search, again, I'm blacklisted on Google search. If you type in geopolitics and empire, almost nothing appears in Google search. How crazy is that? And so if you type it in on DuckDuckGo or any other search engine, all of the, my stuff pops up. When you type in ge- geopolitics and empires, so I didn't mention that, that even Google search has blacklisted me. Um, 
and I'm most active on my Twitter, the Geopolitics and Empire Twitter, or my Telegram. If you like Telegram, join me there. Um, and yeah, you can people can donate. They, if you want to consult, if you want to chat about coming down to Mexico, expatriating geo conspiracies or um, <laughs> podcasting, you know, you can uh, purchase uh, chat with me. Um, or uh, my, yeah, my TNT radio show is over at tntradio.live. You can find my presenter page uh, over there. And yeah, I enjoyed the work you're doing at My Latin Life. I'm frequently, you know, checking your feed and retweeting from time to time. And so, uh, yeah, you're doing good work as well. Thank you. Thank you. Certainly appreciate that. Um, and guys, I mean, the geopolitics and empire is big. I mean, 25,000 subscribers on YouTube, uh, just shy of 18,000 on Twitter and all that, despite the matrix trying to take them down. Um, uh, Pronouncing your name again, Hirvohe. <laughs> Shit, fucking. What was? I'm gonna cut this. You, you started well, but you ended it. No, it's all right. Hirvohe, Hirvohe, Modric. Hirv- kind of like like Luca, the football player. You know, Luca Modric without the uh-huh. D, Mo- Modric. Oh my god, I'm gonna have to cut that so I don't look like an idiot. Um, Guys, Geopolitics and Empire on Twitter at Geopolitics underscore EMP. Go check it out. Go subscribe, YouTube, Twitter, all the other platforms. Any final words? Yeah, if anyone is passing through Guadalajara, you know, drop me a line. I'm, I'm happy to you know meet for a coffee or a uh, tequila. So happy to meet uh, with people and have a chat. And so... Yeah, otherwise, uh, you know, keep your noses clean <laughs> and uh, uh, be careful, you know, stay frosty, as they say. Awesome. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to try to make that happen because I know if we bust up the tequila, we would have a, a hell of a conversation. So we'll have to make that happen in the future. Just not recorded. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Thanks again. This has been another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Geopolitics and Empire. Hervohe Moric. I'm saying that all right. Um, thanks again for joining us. It's been it's been a pleasure. Be seeing you. Absolutely.